Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Vimla Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Before I introduce the episode today, I wanted to remind everyone about our up-and-coming BRN Academy talk on March the 7th. You are in for a treat. Our guest teacher, Rachel Lewis, is a friend and colleague and her speciality is making profound teachings accessible through humour and storytelling. Mark your calendar, Sunday, March the 7th. I'm also delighted to announce that the BRN will be hosting online Buddhist recovery meetings every Wednesday at 5.30 Pacific Time, 8.30 Eastern Time for one hour. The meeting will have a rotating format giving attendees a chance to try out different Buddhist recovery programs, including Recovery Dharma, Eight-Step Recovery, and The Noble Steps. Visit BuddhistRecovery.org for more information. Now for what you have all been waiting for. It's with pleasure that I release this conversation today between my dear friend Valentine, one of the producers of the BRN podcast, and Vince Miller, founder of The Vulnerable Disco. Together they speak about healing from sexual trauma, the myths of rock bottom, and the importance of friendship in recovery. Both Vince and Valentine are active on Instagram. Follow Vince at The Vulnerable Disco and Valentine at Going Somewhere Sober. Get more information on their up-and-coming projects at thevulnerabledisco.com and recoverydisco.com. Okay. Hi, Vince. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So yeah, for our our listeners, um, maybe give us like your name and a little bit about what you're working on right now. Well, my name is Vince Miller. I live in Kansas City, Missouri with my boyfriend and little cat, Stevie Ree. Uh, and I am with the Vulnerable Disco, a um, a blog and hopeful movement when COVID goes away for good. Which the Vulnerable Disco is a movement to help people own their own story. Mm, that's beautiful. And so, you want to get more people involved in it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, looking to get more people involved by essentially being the example of owning my own story through all the things that I've encountered. I find that through all the experiences I've had that um, a lot of people have these experiences and nobody's talking about them. Sobriety, especially a lot of things in our queer community, no one's talking about it and it's weird and it makes me uncomfortable as an empath that all these things are happening and we're not just fully completely owning it to help each other. I love that. I think it's kind of a funny story about how this conversation came about. I'm starting a disco themed recovery kind of website, blog, podcast, and you just launched the Vulnerable Disco on January 1st, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I first when I first saw your Instagram page, I was like I was terrified and 
and and like it also made me just like have all this fear come up and like doubt that I was like oh I I should have worked on this faster because I've been working on it for about a year but I've been very focused on not rushing myself and letting it happen slowly and one of my biggest fear was that someone would get the idea before me and so basically that's what I felt was happening so there was a lot of fear at first and then I reached out to you and I was like oh I'm just gonna reach out and say something nice and just like I felt like I needed to do that I was like I can't just release the recovery disco and not say anything and then we got to talk and it was really nice and now I'm on this other side where I just like I just want to share everything with you I just want to collaborate with you Vimala Sara said other day she's like you know if someone has the same idea then you know it's a good idea if no one has the same idea then it's probably not a good idea absolutely no that's completely true and i'm i'm so glad you did reach out rather than viewing it as oh no i need to stay in my lane and i need to go off and i just need to try to do it bigger and better and which a lot of people tend to do so i'm so glad that you did reach out because it just makes me happy that we do connect in that way rather than being like, oh gosh, this is a, a person I have to walk, like watch out for. So no, I'm, I'm so happy you did. We can be each other's nemesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why disco? So disco came in. So it's kind of, of course, my life, I view it as like convoluted and just so hectic at times in terms of, telling the story and having to um, I feel like every story. So even this question alone is like tied to four different places in my life, which is the constant theme, which is I view sometimes a good thing and a bad thing, but specifically the disco came to me uh, when I started, I tried to do drag in the summer of 2020. I had watched my friend crystal method of Springfield, Missouri. She was on RuPaul's drag race and yes i love crystal yeah yeah so i've known crystal who also is known as as cody um i've known crystal for years and so when i watched her on there it inspired me and i thought maybe that's something i should try and so i leaned into it completely i bought all the makeup all the outfits the wigs and it was something that i was naturally good at but when i got into it um which I leaned more into like, it was more the retro and the seventies and disco that I loved. Mm -hmm. And as I started doing the drag, I started to like tap into a lot of trauma in my childhood that I had not dealt with, which was leaning into my feminine side, dealing with a lot with my mom and our relationship. It was very weird that these things started to pop up in the end. It wasn't working for me, but I realized there's so much of that era of that music that is so much tied to me in my past with dancing for years i was a a trained dancer and so the disco really i grew up with it and i love it and i think there's freedom in it and i think there's just a a life and a soul there that i think makes everyone equal and together when you get on the dance floor and that disco is there i love that you know crystal and i yeah i love this connection to disco and for me disco represents i mean first i just think of fun You know, I think of fun, I think of color, and I love the idea of bringing fun into recovery. And I also, when I think of disco, I also think of people coming together for like a common purpose. And the common purpose is to enjoy yourself. I also, I personally have a background. I grew up as a a raver in high school. And so I, I, like, that was where I came of age. 
was 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 going to raves and learning to dance and like be connected to music and my body and so I just have this history with 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 it and I and I really incorporate that into disco it's just like disco is is it was the rave before the rave you know right and disco's more it's a more fun word I feel like than rave (laughs) oh completely and I think for some reason rave in the queer community like rave versus disco there is like more for some reason a negative Hmm. association to rave in some ways it's more geared toward drugs and alcohol for some reason in some weird sort of way that i think just because like in the 90s rave was you went to go get out of your mind and rave so yeah there there are some things didn't they do that in the discos too when i think of disco i think of cocaine as well i know i know i know completely i think maybe it's maybe it's those things that culturally mm-hmm. like everyone has like a disco themed party but if you have like a rave themed party it's like oh so we're gonna get it's like this it, the energy is different it's almost yeah. heightened in some capacity yeah i could see that i mean yeah recovery rave it just doesn't have recovery disco <laughs> it's just it's fun and and another thing for me with disco is I, so originally my project was going to be called Recovery Discovery. And okay. so that, that ended up being shortened to Recovery Disco. So, cause like a part of what Recovery Disco is, is going to be an exploration, a discovery of all the different forms of recovery that are out there. Because when I looked back at my recovery, I saw that when I recovered from addiction, that wasn't my first recovery. The work that I did on my childhood trauma back starting when I was 17, that was when my, my recovery started. That's when I first engaged in reading a a self-help book and I started therapy and I'm like, Oh, well, why do I not celebrate that part of my recovery? Why am I only celebrating when I let go of substances and addiction? And so a question to mind for you is what, in what ways do you feel in your life that you have recovered? I know that you have a history with addiction, but what other ways have you recovered? This is actually one of my favorite topics to get into when we talk about recovery and sobriety, mm. because we it, it feels like in most circles, you go into it and everyone just hits the sobriety topic and everyone's like, so blessed, so happy, I'm sober. And it kind of just stays there. And we talk about the alcohol and the addiction. Mm. But for me... The recovery was actually getting sober was actually just opening the the door. It was opening the door to like a storage unit of trauma. And I had to go into those boxes and uncover it. One of them being my parents divorced when I was 11. It was really traumatic. My dad's an alcoholic and my mom is a meth addict. Hmm. And so that was hard. Then four years later, I turned 15. I was molested Hmm. um, by a teacher and then I got into an abusive relationship at 18. And then I learned to drink at 19. And then so all these things kept spiraling. And I was not dealing with it, not in therapy. And so I was drinking heavily from age 19 to 28, not dealing with anything, just being a mess. And so um, when I think about recovery, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm recovering. I'm not only recovering from alcohol, recovering from reparenting myself, learning mm-hmm. how to, learning what healthy boundaries are, what a healthy relationship is. So I, there's there was so much in my life that I had not 
dealt with or ever or ever learned how to deal with as an adult because I was drinking at 19 and and I had an immediate and healthy relationship with alcohol. There was never healthy. For me, the alcohol is not the problem. Obviously, yes, it was a problem. But in order to really move on, I had to go back. I had to retrace my steps. Mm-hmm. So what did that look like for you in terms of... You had more questions for me, didn't you? Was there no, a build no, to that? No, no, okay. that's fine. No, we can go into the other questions. No, I love that you're asking me. Because um, I actually relate to a lot of your story, which I didn't know this element of your story until some of the elements of your story until I, I was looking at your about me page last night. And I was like, oh, I, you know, talking about sexual abuse, because I experienced sexual abuse as a child as well. There was a lot of abuse in my childhood and there was a lot of trauma in regards to religion. And I was raised Christian and I was, you know, abused in, in the Christian church as a child. And that was like, that was a lot that was. And so when I, it's interesting thinking about me when I was younger and thinking about me as a teenager, like I just had so much fucking trauma that I was carrying around and like absolutely zero skills, zero skills to deal with it. So all I was trying to find was a community where I wasn't too annoying and people would put up with me and be also like a place where I could enjoy myself. And that's how I got into raving, which then I got into drugs. I used to not like alcohol, which is so funny to, I have this memory of just being like, Oh yeah, I prefer ecstasy. I don't, I don't really drink. Um, but then when I finally did have to go into recovery, it was, um, it was because of drinking, but I, I mean, I did have to let go of ecstasy at one point when I was younger, but I did that without any support. I did that without any help. I just decided I needed to change my social life. Every weekend I needed ecstasy. I'd go to the raves, but I'd only be comfortable if I did ecstasy in my early 20, like probably 20. I don't think I was 20. I wasn't 21 yet. It was when I hit 21 that I started finding like queer, like like cool underground queer alternative community. And so it was basically like raves, but it was all around alcohol and being gay and Suddenly I was like, felt attractive for the first time. And I was, you know, I felt like I was in my element because I knew how to go to a dance party. And I was surrounded by all these cool queers. My recovery originally was, I mean, before that, stepping back from that, was started when I was like 18, I'd say, when I went to my first 10-day meditation retreat. Um, Or actually even before that, when I was 17, I was in juvie. And I found a book on confronting your abusers. And I read this whole book and I like wrote letters to my abusers. And like, I was like ready to just confront this. I mean, the police got involved and ended up just discrediting everything I said and, and, and dismissed the case. And it was, you know, and this is a story I'm sure a lot of people have. But then in my, you know, 18, 19, I started exploring meditation and I went to a meditation retreat and it was really powerful to recognize the intensity that was in my head, like how affected I was by my past and the trauma and how much hatred I carried uh, and judgment and like how often I was thinking about it. You know, when, when you are silent for 10 days you really hear the things that your mind tells you every day. There was a lot going on. After that 10-day, I continued to meditate, and I went back and did other 10-day 
sits. And that was, that was the beginning of my real like healing from my trauma. Anyway, I didn't do, I didn't do official trauma therapy, but I did learn to have a relationship with understanding like what I could do for myself to, you know, have a better relationship in my mind with the trauma that I experienced and how to not, and, and how to let it go in a way, but not like not that anything that happened to me was okay, but I learned that how to have a relationship with it that felt all right. Um, eventually I worked towards a, a forgiving my abusers, which that was, you know, such a process and that, you know, it wasn't that what they did was okay, but it was that if I kept holding on to the hatred, it would just, it came out of me in ways It affected my, my relationships with people, my interpersonal relationships. And I just, I saw that I myself was human and that I myself had hurt people. And even though I had not hurt people in the ways that these people had hurt people, I did see that there, that it would, it is possible. You know, it was like a lot of unraveling of that kind of things. And I don't want to ever tell someone that they need to forgive their abuser because that's really fucked up. You know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, but that was, that was where, that was where a lot of my healing came from. And then it's funny, this all happened long before I struggled with addiction. And so when I did, after trying to get sober in AA for like four years, I I tried to make it work. I really tried to make AA work. And I just, I moved around and I was homeless for a really long time. And it just kept not working. And finally, after things got really bad and I was like living in the, basement of the, you know, my parents where a lot of my abuse happened, uh, and just being really depressed and suicidal for years, I finally was like, you know, why don't I try Buddhism again? Like meditation is what helped me heal before. Like, why don't I try this again? And I'd actually been told from rehabs in the past, oh, don't, don't try to do Buddhism. Like you need to do AA. This is what's going to work. Don't try other things. Don't try things that aren't specifically about addiction. There was a lot of messages in rehab that was like, don't listen to yourself. Like listen to us. We're the professionals. And so, yeah, so that's kind of how my journey took place. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, you are, that's, you don't ever get that from like, obviously an Instagram account. Or anything of that nature. So it takes like these moments to like hear stories, which I, I love it. This is like my favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> I don't want to hear people suffering, but I love to, yeah. <laughs> obviously, but I love to hear your story and how this, again, the similarities in it. I always find it interesting how people grieve things such as sexual abuse, mm. because I, I tried to do very similar things that you did, where it was like, I need, like, I have to, I need to forgive. I need to move on. But I found that. I tried to do it immediately, hmm. like right after, like as it happened and right as I came clean with it, I was like, you know what? I don't want him in trouble. It's okay. I, you know, I, I asked for it. I wanted it. And that he, you know, he was 36. I was 15. So no, I did. I did not want, it. I didn't know what I was thinking. I ended up getting with uh, another guy. He had just turned 18 and this man had also sexually abused him. And him and I found each other and connected and immediately we were two damaged souls immediately attached to each other because we were codependent, didn't know how to deal with it. And so I came out to my dad three months later after all this had happened, after I you know, came out with the abuse and 
my dad looked at me and said, well, you must have wanted it then. He's like, you must have wanted this because you're telling me you're gay now. And, God. and the guy was an instructor and director at a local theater. And he went on to say, well, if you, he's like, that means you didn't earn the roles that you auditioned for. That means you slept with him to get these roles. What this has taught me is I don't want anyone who listens to this to be my dad as a bad person because he's not in any capacity, but he was also struggling with things in his life. He didn't know how to react. I think he, obviously I was coming from a place that, you know, if you ask him now, he probably wouldn't even remember saying it, but it's those weird things. And I, so I learned through that years later when I finally went to therapy for it, I had realized that I had accepted, I took on the blame for all of it, for the way my dad responded for the, Mm -hmm. for everything that happened. And when my therapist actually a year ago looked at me and was like, or now two years looked at me and goes, so you're telling me that you took on the blame. You were 15 and you're telling me all these adults were right and you were wrong. She's like, that doesn't, she's like, that doesn't add up. And I think I carried that blame and shame Mm -hmm. for years, which, you know, added to my depression and my need to escape from it. I tried to bring it. I actually had posted a video in February, 2000. 20 it'll be here in february where i tried to come out with the video and come clean with everything that happened and it completely backfired on me because everyone who watched it took the the very few parts i pointed out and they said you're trying to blame the theater for all this the theater did everything they could how dare you speak about this theater which it's very culty where i'm Mm. from in terms of that theater and so i had a lot of shame and people blaming me. And so I was like, and I, that's when I realized, Oh, I was not I still had not healed from that completely. Mm. And so I, but how powerful that like how great it was though, that you spoke your truth and that you were willing to do that. I mean, I mean, even though you got, you didn't get the reaction that you expected. I, that shows, that shows a strength that shows a willingness and that, you know, sounds like the beginning of uh, your healing journey in a way. Yeah, I yeah, and, and Brene Brown has this per, has this great quote that it really hit me that I heard less than a month ago when she was talking about, you know, when you want to come clean with something, when you want to talk about something like that, mm-hmm. her rule is my healing depends on your reaction. Then I'm not mm-hmm. ready to talk about it. And looking back, I wasn't ready. I still mm-hmm. wasn't ready in some ways because it, it was kind of like I woke up that year I woke up and I was like, Oh yeah, this is wrong. How dare people, how dare the world, you know, blame me for this because nothing happened. The charges, there were never any charges pressed. Um, I continued to perform in the theater because I didn't want to lose my friends. So I accepted the blame. I accepted all of it. When you're talking about writing your abusers and trying to forgive them. And and it's so interesting because I find also that we go through different stages of it. It's like you wait, some days you wake up and you're like, you know, you're fine. Then another day you wake up and you're like, wait, what the hell happened to me? I've heard before someone say that you don't just get to, you don't forgive someone or forgive an event. And then you're just for, it's forever forgiven. Like you, it's a continual process. And there are some days when I wake up just, pissed and angry and resentful and triggered 
And there's, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a continual like metamorphosis, my relationship with what happened to me as a kid and how I process that and how I deal with it. And I, yeah, there definitely is stages. I think that it's so important to be, to be angry. You know, if you don't go through that stage of being like, this was not okay. You know, I don't feel like you can get to the next stage. Like when people try to stop people, when people try to be like, you're, you're trying to blame people or, or stop blaming people for your problems. Like that's not helpful. And the, or if they try to tell you to forgive people right away, it's like, no, you need to go through, you need to like feel, you need to be empowered to feel your emotions and feel whatever it is that you feel about what happened to you and know it's okay to feel that way. Absolutely. I, I come from a family where we don't do that. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't make space for feelings and how dare you have feelings, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my mom is a very emotional person, but she kind of, you know, when she, when my parents divorced, she kind of really, her addiction took over her. And so she was not as present in her life, but my dad grew up not showing emotion and he didn't, that was just not something he did. So we all grew up and we call all kind of, you know, the divorce happened and we just moved on and we tried to live life without feeling anything that we need to get over it. And all is well, all is great. And as I got older, I realized I'm a very emotional person. I like to talk things through. When I got sober, when I went to therapy, I wanted to talk about all of it. And my family was like, what is wrong? Like they thought I was too emotional. They thought I was trying to cause problems by bringing things up. And so that is, that, that goes back again to the whole point of, you know, the vulnerable disco is, learning to create space for that because when we give space for ourselves we can then give space for other people that's what that is that is returning to the dance floor i think that's something that's still even right now as we're talking i still have to do the self-talk and run myself that it's okay to give space to all of it the good and what we deem as bad 100 mm-hmm. so I, I i noticed on your instagram i saw a picture of uh, pema shodron's book and so i'm curious how have you made contact with Buddhist wisdom and like mindfulness practices and how has that influenced your recovery? Well, that is funny because when you started talking about it, I was like, I bet, (laughs) I bet this book has been read Um, because that book really did change me. I had to read it. I had to read that book four different times. Mm-hmm. because every page is like a, an awakening and it's like so mind-blowing that my brain actually couldn't comprehend it in a lot of ways but i will i will admit that beyond that book i didn't research buddhism or anything after that not that i didn't want to but mm-hmm. i think it was one of those things that sometimes my brain doesn't go to that of like maybe i should expand to buddhism or maybe i think because i'm in some ways still really weary of any sort of religion in some capacity because again there's so much shame tied to it but in terms of my recovery that book taught me was was the whole idea of which is the famous quote things come together and they fall apart they come together and they fall apart and that's what that's what life is and allowing allowing all those things to just be as is and not to try to label those things. And that book is, that's a book I recommend to a lot of people. I don't, I, I'd love to hear more of, about how it helped you in terms of your recovery, because you would, you obviously practice it and you're in it. And yeah, I'd love to, I would love to hear your aspect on it. Well, I love 
what you were saying about being wary because uh, you're like, oh, religion. But you were willing to read this book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And I, one thing, what, what came to mind was Sharon, how Sharon Salzberg, she's a, a Buddhist teacher. One thing I heard her say that I loved, for her, she doesn't practice Buddhism as a religion. I mean, for me, I, I approached Buddhism not as a religion because I was very, you know, I have a lot of, I have religious trauma, specifically Christian religion. But when I came in contact with it, it was just like, oh, meditation. It was like a skill that I, a thing I could do, a skill I could develop. And I learned about mindfulness. And the book that I read really early on when I, after discovering meditation was Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. That book takes the element of mindfulness out of Buddhism and really makes it very accessible. And there's a lot of other, like there's other Buddhist elements that are in that book as well, other than mindfulness. It wasn't talking about Buddhism in like a weird magic way. And And the thing I liked about Buddhism is there wasn't any, there's no magical beings. There's no, the only thing that was kind of mystical about Buddhism was like the idea of reincarnation, but that wasn't really talked about that much because it wasn't that important. Buddhism really was like a philosophy, like a positive psychology philosophy. It, it was almost like the first psychology. It was it was a study of the brain, but the study of the brain took place through your own mind. Like you are studying how your mind works and that by studying your own mind, you befriend the way that your mind works and you're able to make changes in that way. So that for my healing has always been so helpful because I'm, it helps me in a and stuff. People be like, Oh, my best thinking got me here. You know, they'll have these like negative ideas about listening to yourself. Meditation helps me to let go of like the impulsiveness, the, the thoughts that are like toxic and let go of that and, and tune into a deeper wisdom. It's like I wasn't listening to my deeper wisdom when I was caught up in addiction and when I was like hurting people in my life and just being, you know, a mess. I wasn't listening to my deeper wisdom. When I recovered, I had found a way to tap into my inner wisdom and finally listened to myself and sought out meditation. And I think meditation for me too was like, it was so helpful for impulse control. So it it really is one of the number one practices for relapse prevention because a lot of a lot of people their main issue for relapse is having unexpected emotions and you know impulsively reaching for the primary skill or tool that they've used in the past which was you know alcohol or drugs or whatever that coping mechanism is so yeah so there's like many ways to kind of come into buddhism and and I've I've never really joined a specific lineage of Buddhism. I, I do I do ten day retreats with Vipassana, like the SN Goenka retreats, because they're free um, and you donate after. And I really appreciate that, and it's just made it really accessible for me. For you know, I, I had very little money, if no money at all, many times in my life. Yeah. So I don't know if that answered any of your question. I don't even remember what the question was. But that's... <laughs> no, that does. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's perfect. Yeah, back to the med- to the meditation point. That is one of those things that it's like when I'm doing it consistently, mm-hmm. I feel it. There's a change in my day, in my week, in my month, and then out of nowhere, I will 
wake up one day and realize, oh, I've gone like three weeks without meditating. And it's just this weird, and I'm like, oh, that's why I've been anxious. That's why I've been a mess. And I also find that they say that meditation is, it can be, it can be like different things. Like they say swimming can be a form of meditation or, which I don't know, I could be making that up. This could be totally just like Americans ruining the entire system of like meditation. Um, but I've, heard, I've heard this too. And I think that the, I think the difference is like you can do things mindfully, like you can drive mindfully, but driving can't be meditation. At least when I think of meditation, I think of where, you know, John Kabat-Zinn always talks about not trying to go anywhere and not trying to do anything. And so mm-hmm. when I think of formal meditation practice, I think of, stillness and and but like walking walking meditation you know there are there are movement meditations that you can do um but they're like a slowed down version of walking uh but but at the same time if you want to call something meditation and that is a helpful tool for you then i think it's great i but for me i always i'm always like well i can do things mindfully and then i can meditate and it's important for me to differentiate because i don't get the same benefit of just doing certain things mindfully i don't get the same intense benefit right that um i would say my closest form of consistent and i would i wouldn't call it meditation only because again by definition of what that is even what you're saying but like could sort be of, too. there might be no. on here that are listening they're like you're you don't know what you're talking <laughs> about <laughs> how dare you um I would say for me, running, running has actually saved me in my recovery and sobriety because, of course, the endorphins, the getting your body into shape and all that jazz. But for me, it was my brain can, I allow my brain while I'm running, I really allow my brain to run itself out. I will just allow myself to let all the thoughts go. And it's almost like I feel like I'm just let like you open up a window and you let just all the crap fly like you have everything that sort of goes flying out the window that's what it feels like mm-hmm. and so for me if i if i don't run i feel a huge um my my brain actually starts to clog up and i get anxious and mad and i'm like oh well it's been you haven't ran in three days and so like i ran in two days and i can feel it in my brain today. Mm-hmm. While I do need to make a focus on meditation because I don't think anything beats it, things like that do help my very overactive brain in that mm-hmm. way. I love running. I get so inspired when I run and yeah. I get I get I get confident when I run. I, that's where my best my best ideas. I often will like pause to like journal for a second and a lot of recovery disco, a lot of the ideas that I've developed have come from running or like or sitting down and writing right after I ran. Yeah, no, completely. And there's times where I'll be like, <laughs> where I will be in the middle and I'll be like, I have to stop and put this in my phone now or I will mm-hmm. forget it. Because if I don't, I'll run, I'll get back in my car and I'm like, okay, so I had that idea and I was listening to that one song. So uh-huh. what? Ha- and then I'm like, son of a, like, I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to go back. If it's okay, I have some question. I have some questions for you mm. with AA and speaking mm. of with recovery and what's helping with what helps, because I found again like this lightness and giving space and sort of the things we're talking about. 
I only did AA three times and they were Zoom calls because I started during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point I was in a year and a half into my recovery. Yeah. Um, and I hated it. I yeah. absolutely hated AA. Um, because I felt like you it removed the control from the person in some capacity and you were made to feel bad almost for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know you're part of the luckiest club, Mm-mm. correct? You're not a part of it. You Tempest. were in that. So you're part of Tempest that you were in, yeah. you were just in an article though with Laura McCowan, correct? Yeah. I was in the New Which, York times. Congratulations. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's that so just great. happened yesterday. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm interested to hear, you know, the difference in what you do versus AA with the groups you attend. Mm-hmm. I mean, first, I want to say that I don't hate AA uh, <laughs> because I know that a lot of some people, maybe a lot of people listening are in 12 step groups. And I totally want to validate that, you know, if it's helpful for you, that is fantastic, you know? And absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. But it also has been so helpful for my recovery uh, to hear from people that AA didn't work for and their journeys, because that's how I got sober. I got sober by finding alternatives to AA. I tried AA for four years and like I moved around to different cities, to different states, to different rehabs trying to find whatever this magic thing was that was going to make it work for me. And it never, it just never worked for me. The primary tool of God and AA are higher power. Like it, to me, it doesn't, there's no difference between God or higher power. That external focus, that just wasn't, that didn't work with my worldview. I already had a form of spirituality. I already had some, some tools, but I was ignoring those tools. I'm ignoring the tools and wisdom that I had previous to addiction because I was told that I had to get sober through AA. And this was the, this was what sobriety looked like. And this is where you get sober. And so I tried it for four years. And when I finally tried Buddhism, bam, I was sober. And it was like, and I suddenly could collect (laughs) sober time. And it was like, all I needed to do was try something else that fit with me. And I discovered Tempest when I was two years sober and I, I still had slips here and there, like the tools that are provided in Tempest and the the focus on empowerment and whole, like holistic healing uh, and, and then mapping out your own personalized recovery, like holistic recovery program that helped me. Now I, I haven't had a slip in, in two years. And so I've been sober for four years now. Work. Um, yeah. And so I I love I love groups. I love finding groups that I feel comfortable in and safe in. I facilitated meetings for so long. Like as soon as I got sober, I was like, okay, where's the Buddhist meeting that I can go to? And then I I found a Buddhist it was a Buddhist 12-step meeting. I just ignored the 12-step part of it, focus on the Buddhist part of it. And then I started my own Buddhist recovery meeting uh, with a group of people that I met and facilitated different Buddhist recovery meetings for for years and I'm still a part of recovery Dharma and I, I love them and they're, you know, Buddhist inspired, not Buddhist required. So it uses the philosophy of Buddhism, not as a religion, but the, you know, the tools that in Buddhism that can help with addiction. 
it's been really powerful for me a to find groups that I love being in, and then it's been really powerful for me to be like, I don't have to go to meetings to be sober. I I actually am strong enough in my sobriety to not go to meetings for a couple months, and that was actually like a form of self care was not going to any meetings. My favorite stories though are people that got sober in a you know their own unique way, and like it sounds like you have that because you didn't use a specific recovery program to get sober. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And I have to, now I feel obligated to go on the record and say, I'm not putting down AA. I'm not shaming AA. <laughs> but my yeah. experience was that I did sit on that zoom call and I thought to myself, I really hate this Yeah, because I think, because I didn't use it. You didn't need you know, it. I, it sounded like there are times where I'm like, well, I feel sometimes I feel weird discussing my sobriety because it's like, oh, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't near rock bottom. I wasn't homeless. I didn't lose my job. Mm -hmm. There are all those things you hear these stories about. And then Mm -hmm. people are like, well, what happened to you? And I'm like, well, alcohol didn't, I mean, I made a lot of bad decisions, but for me, I think once I realized it was after when I, the first thing I did was that within the first year, in 2018, in January of 2018, I, st- I was like, I'm done drinking. I've had it. And I floated on this like ch- this like cloud of like, sobriety is amazing. You can do it too. Buy the t-shirt. Get the pin. Like, and it was that weird sort of Instagram fluffiness that we tend to see. And s- immediately I thought, maybe I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I can be a moderate drinker because I'm doing so good. And then I fell off and I fell off like four times in 2018. So then at the end of 2000, end of that year, I was drinking every single night till I was blacking out. And I was like, Oh, we're back here again. For me, I think what helped on my journey and what has, and what continues to help is because I think within that first year, I allowed myself to entertain the tricks in my head of like, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's not this, maybe it's something else. And I think because I didn't hold myself back from those things and I really let myself slip over and over that when I entered 2019, I bought this naked mind, the book mm-hmm. by Amy grace. Mm-hmm. And that book, that is a book that changed my entire sober journey because it debunked every idea I had in my head about what it could be but I didn't do I didn't do meetings I didn't do a program I don't know how different my experience would be because obviously I didn't I I love this I love your story I think it's I feel like it's more important almost in nowadays to hear the stories of people that didn't lose everything that 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 they were able to be caught before things got super terrible because for me that that could be inspiring for the person out there who is questioning whether or not you know questioning their relationship to a substance or a behavior or alcohol and they're like well I mine doesn't look like the alcoholic in AA I didn't hit rock bottom I didn't lose everything so they stop themselves from fully questioning their relationship I think it's way it's so powerful to hear these stories of people that, yeah, that it didn't have to, their whole life didn't have to be destroyed before they, they decided to give it up. And I think it's so beautiful, your story that you were able to 
get some kind of support and inspiration outside of outside of like from books and from Instagram, there was, there was a culture that you were able to join without having to like, like get a membership in some kind of organized group. You know, that's like you had an individual experience in with sobriety and there was a lot of support and wisdom that you were able to access outside of formalized groups. And I think that's fantastic. And maybe that's the future, or maybe it's just going to allow there to be so many different levels of support for people that have different recoveries. Right. And I, I totally do see that going in that direction only because I think we had this idea for so long that there was only one way to heal and one way to move on. But I do think part of it too, which I guess I completely forgot to cover (laughs) was, (laughs) was in what led to all that was I went through a divorce the year before I was, so I was drinking heavily at that point and that's, that was bad. And it's the point where I would go out every single night, every weekend, because I just moved to Kansas city with my husband at the time. So we separated that September Well, in that February, I was walking home from like a, I was at the bars and I walked home at 11 PM and I was blackout drunk and I was held at gunpoint by oh, four shit. men who had guns, they all had guns, and they stole my car, totaled it, and I had to move back home because I had ran out of money. Mm. I had no money because I had to refurnish a new apartment again after separation. I was spending all of my money on alcohol. And so at that point, I was like, well, I don't have a car. They took my phone. I have nothing. I'm up here struggling. So I moved home, and I thought, oh, I'd be, I'm going to be surrounded by family and friends and it's all going to be great. I'm going to reconnect with people. Well, I got back to my hometown of Springfield and my family went back to their routine. I didn't hear from them. I woke up one day after a really long night. At that point, nobody knew, even to this day, people didn't know I had a problem because I was at home drinking by myself every single night. And I woke up one day and I don't know what it was, but I thought no one is coming no one's coming to save me. Who knows if I sent text messages or said something to someone online or, you know, I I think I checked my phone the next day and I just thought I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. And no one's going to stop me until I just die. Mm -hmm. But I look at that and I think if I wasn't, if I had not been held at gunpoint, would I have continued to be sloppy in a Mm -hmm. city making bad decisions and just drinking overnight. So I, I look at those points in my life and I think, those were those were the lessons. Getting out the gunpoint was was my program in some as, aspect to be like, this is what's going to continue to happen. You're going to get yourself in these situations until you just die. <laughs> and that sounds morbid, but that was kind of. I grew up inside a funeral home, so my dad always put the fear that anything could happen to us. And I always grew up thinking, okay, dad, whatever. So then when think when something like that did happen, I was like, oh yeah, so I actually could die. And so that was that was a huge lesson for me. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to say about rock bottom and like I have a I struggle with this. People use the term rock bottom in different ways and some people I've heard someone be like, "Oh, well that person had a high bottom." Like like that their that their recovery story was less was less in some way and I think that's so yeah. fucked up. I've also heard people say, "Oh, well if you if someone is struggling with addiction, like, don't let them live with you. Like, you need to let them get their rock bottom. And then they will they will come to recovery. And what's fucked up about that is 
the I so my home my homeless adventure my years of being homeless I was very lucky in that I I was able to crash on people's couches a lot and I was able and my parents eventually let me come live at at their house if my parents had been given this advice to just like let me go live on the streets because when I moved in with my parents I I had burned every single bridge I had stayed on every couch that I could have stayed on I worked in homeless services for many years it would do so much more damage to live on the streets and struggle with addiction than if you can have that same struggle inside a house or a room when you get into the street community I don't know I don't know how to say this correctly but it's it's really hard and I feel like if I had been on the streets my problems would have been a lot worse I probably would have gotten into a lot harder drugs I think I my life would have been more at risk but instead my parents let me come live with them and drink and just be a mess and you know they still loved me and eventually I was able to figure my shit out I just don't like that idea of we don't need to think about people's rock bottoms. Like it doesn't matter how terrible things got for you. What matters is like that you found the tools and the community or the wisdom that you needed to let go of something that was causing your life harm. Like I've I've known people that drank one glass of wine a day and they recognize that 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 they had they needed support just doing that like no they wouldn't have been considered an alcoholic but it was causing problems in their life they didn't like the effects that it had on their health and they needed support to let it go your story also isn't that rare because according to studies the majority of people that recover from drugs and alcohol they actually do it without they do it on their own without accessing any kind of services. The majority of people that quit, like if you think about people that quit smoking or people that do cocaine, and a lot of people struggle with substance issues and don't ever go into any form of formal recovery. You probably don't hear their stories as often in these kind of places because probably don't become like advocates, you know, for recovery. (laughs) Well, that's what I noticed people, when I started to become more vocal, Mm-hmm. I would get messages from people that I knew for years that said, you know, oh, well, I stopped, you know, I've been sober now for so many years. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that about you. And or people who would come to me, you know, months after I'd been vocal about it. And they said, because, you know, because you said something, because you're up with your story, I am realizing that there's something I don't like about you know, the way I become when I drink or that I'm starting to do this every day and I notice that pattern. So I, so I think on the flip side of that too is not only is it dangerous for people struggling, it closes people off that in those small instances, in some ways it helps them to deny their problem even more. So it's like when we say, you know, oh, we have to hit rock bottom for how to have value or to realize there's a problem. So then you have the people that are like, well, at least, you know, I have my job. I'm, I have a house. I don't have a problem. And you're like, well, cause I still do see that. I see it often. And we were very dismissive of people's stories and journeys because of it. And we're not helping anyone at all. I completely, completely agree. 
One thing that I was curious to ask you, since we're both queers here, since you've gotten sober, how has like the gay culture and queer culture influenced your recovery? Like how have they, how has that culture showed up? How has it not showed up? Like, have you run into any problems? Like, what has that been like for you? Oh. (laughs) Did I open a can of worms? (laughs) just think it's this is like the reaction I have every time someone brings it up because of course it's getting better and I hope and I and I say this is in like a, a past tense sort of when I first started the recovery I mean you, there was no place for a sober person in our community mm-hmm. it was hard I had to, I had to disappear for a while and in some ways I had to give it up completely um, with those groups of people that I would spend time with because it was all based in alcohol we had to Mm -hmm. we went to go to brunch to get wasted we would go to watch drag queens and get wasted and other than you know i'm involved in stonewall sports which is great they you know obviously they're not drinking during when we play which is fun but as a whole it's hard it's so hard and i think it, it does take time to really sort that out as a queer person and to find that space locally where you can where you can find those people because it's it's rare in a lot of ways if we look at the history of like queer and gay community spaces we look back at stonewall and it was you know it was fighting to not be harassed at bars because underground bars was the only place that we could really be ourselves in secret but we're so far from that but still our society is built with the the main community spaces the main public community spaces for socialization in our culture are money pits for alcohol that's hard for everyone i think to deal with but then in the gay community especially it's like we don't have a lot of other spaces. I don't know, mainstream gay culture, it's like, you know, I remember Pride always being like sponsored by Smirnoff. It, what's interesting though is in, so I live in Olympia and there's a lot of queer community here. And I found that in queer community versus gay community, there was more inclusion for sobriety and not even for people that are like sober in a special way, but like there was a community uh, space here that was queer and they did like social justice and work and they would have like sober bars at their potlucks. I think people working in social justice are, you know, are a lot more understanding of that. There are people, there's a, there is a spectrum of people that with different relationships to substances. And yeah, and I just haven't seen that trickle into the, the gay community much and i mean i I find that there's a lot of ignorance in in gay community for whatever reason i mean well in gay community it tends to be men that hang out with men and that's mostly what they hang out with and so there ends up being missing all of these wisdoms from other and and it it makes sense why this would happen for safety reasons you want to be around people like you that have a similar experience as you in life and you feel the most safe there the wisdom of like the trans community was so was so like did not exist in the gay community for so long it's like now that we have all these like social media and the internet the the wisdom from the trans community is is now being made mainstream gays don't, often don't associate with lesbians and lesbians don't associate with gays or like you know the trans community isn't welcome in either and i mean and hopefully we're we're coming to a more a more uh, 
communal and accepting and diverse queer community. And I, I definitely see that happening in the mainstream now, but it's still, there's still those pockets of, of ignorance, I feel like in, in different queer communities. So not to be hating, like this is just something that I'm processing. I, I totally agree with you. And I do think it is changing. I think with the help of social media, people are, the gays are getting educated. The, like the gay men are just the most, it's, it's a defense mechanism. It's, we grew up being very defensive of who we were because we had to hide who we were. I think the majority of us are so traumatized that we had to build these shells and we just kept building upon them and it became very surface. And, and so, yeah, we're, we drink to, to completely numb that part out because we're all, even when we all get in the, we all go into the club and everyone is strutting around and they're wasted. And I've been to the club a couple of times sober and it is horrible. Like I just stand there <laughs> like, like no, no one here is having fun. Like I just look around. I'm like, just so we're all aware here, none of you are having, if you guys are all sober, you would be miserable right now. Nobody would enjoy this. And that's when I realized if I have to drink to have a good time to enjoy the place, I'm not doing it. I moved back up here and I had met the group of friends I had up here in Kansas city through getting wasted and going out. And when I moved back up here, I was sober because it two to three years had passed by and they, we all kept in touch over social media. You know, by keep in touch, I mean, we followed each other and liked our pictures. Uh, but I got back up here and I was not invited back to things. I was not invited to their parties anymore because it was, oh, you're you're sober and, you know, we don't want to make you uncomfortable. And here's the thesis. It's not about me being comfortable. It makes you uncomfortable that I'm sober and I'm going to witness all of you get wasted and do things that you wake up the next day and you say, oh, sorry, I was wasted. Mm-hmm. And it that's, I think that's for me when people ask the question, you know, how is it, you know, with friends when you get sober, when you stop drinking? And the reality is it's not, you know, it's not about, you know, how do I tell my friends? How do I still hang out with my friends? The question is, will you even want to hang out with those friends? Because that changed for me. That it, That's the part that is lonely. It's not a matter of will I fit in? It's do I want to fit in? Mm-hmm. And thank God for social media because, you know, I found you through social media. I find all these people and my good friend, Anthony, he lives out in LA now and and he's he's gay and he's going through a sober journey. And I and my friend Jody in New York, she's so and it's funny because I felt like all the people who moved away that I knew that were in the gay community, they ended up getting sober. And I'm like, of course all of us <laughs> will get sober after we move away from each other. So thank God for the internet in that aspect. Cause there's definitely we are here, we exist. Obviously, we're on here talking about it. It does take time to find them. But it is hard and it's a lot of weeding out of people. I mean, especially in dating. Mm. Dating dating is hard. It oh, is God. that was um that was bad for sure. Yeah. You tell me more about that. So so I did the thing when I started to date people and when I was first you know, when I decided to stop drinking, I like went and tell people up, like up front. Because I'd be like, well, I don't want to seem lame. I don't want to seem like I can't have a good time just because I don't drink. Because I wouldn't put it on my Tinder or anything. Mm-hmm. And then but we'd start texting and talking. And so the first date would always be, well, we can go to a bar, but I don't I don't drink. 
Mm-hmm. So immediately I was like, what, who, what is this? This is weird. And so, it's so weird. It's so weird to tell someone that you haven't even met yet yeah. that you don't drink. Cause it just, it. Cause, oh, that means you're problematic. That means, oh, you're messy and you're problematic if you don't mm-hmm. drink. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's hard. And uh, yeah. And so when I met, my current boyfriend David, he was we had he started following me on Instagram before we actually started talking. That's so he, cute. He didn't drink. Um, but we started talking about like Bernie Brown and things like that. And he isn't he would occasionally have like a beer or something, but uh-huh. uh so he automatically knew that I was sober because I was very upfront. And so yeah. the there was this immediate relief when we then met up that I didn't have to tell him. He just knew. So we met at coffee shops and so I got really lucky in that way. Uh, so he already, he already knew. So I didn't have anything to hide. We kind of yeah. met having to hide it. That's beautiful. I, so I, I have a very similar experience. This is, I feel like we have a very, yeah, our whole dating life was the same. Um, when I started dating and like not hookups, like trying to, you know, go on, you know, go right. on a date and get to know each other. I, first tried to not go to bars and I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, can we go to a coffee shop or go for a walk? And I, I tried to communicate like that. I'm sober. And it was just so weird. Me and my friend Stevie, we went and got brunch one day and they were, the, the brunch place was full except for the bar area in the back. And it's this cute little diner here in Olympia called the reef. And so we were like, Oh, well, let's just go there. And this is my friend who's also sober. Who's in, Uh, recovery and so we got pancakes and I felt really safe and comfortable in this bar and there was like there was like a Popeye's it was a video game like a tabletop we ate our food on the table of this video game console and 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 we played the game and it was really fun and after that I was like oh okay like I felt I feel safe there there's something else for me to do besides drink like there's food and there's a video game and so I started just having my dates there. We'd meet somebody online. I, you know, I'd be like, let's go to the reef for a drink. And I would just get, I just wouldn't even have, I'm not going to, I just didn't have that conversation with them on the first day. I just, I came before they got there. I ordered myself a Coca-Cola because I loved Coca-Cola in early sobriety. And the bartender in the back there knew me and sometimes would just give me the Coca-Cola for free. They wouldn't accept my money. And and then I'd have us specifically sit at the Popeye video game. So, you know, I had something to do with my hands. It was a way that helped me ground myself into the moment. Because I, I feel like with alcohol, what I've learned since not drinking is when I would just get a drink right at the beginning of a party or, or going out, I, I would be drinking to calm my nerves. And then those nerves, they wouldn't necessarily be calmed by the drinking. They'd be calmed by just being there for 20 minutes to half an hour. And so when I go places, I just recognize like I'm going to be uncomfortable for a little while. So if I can find things for myself to do to help myself kind of distract myself a little bit as I just orient into my new environment. And so that's, yeah, that's what I did. And so I don't even think I dated that long though, before I met Casey, my boyfriend. Now we're about to celebrate three years in March and yeah. And I don't, I don't know when I told him that I didn't drink, but he was very supportive. He actually quit. He quit drinking. He doesn't drink anymore. He actually, he went to a 10 day meditation retreat. And after that was like, 
you know, I don't think I even want to have a little bit anymore. And he'd recognized his own history with some problematic use of, of substances. And he never, he did the Tempest like uh, 30 day, but he never really felt like he needed an ongoing sober community. I mean, all of our friends are sober, but I mean, not every single one, but most of them. So yeah, it's been cool seeing his own journey with with recovery. This has been so it's been so great chatting with you and getting to know you. Like I'm like, are we are we friends now? Is that Yeah, I I need to say that you're obligated to be my friend now. <laughs> Yay. Well, what if your what are your friendships looking like now? I mean, we talked about you you touched on that, but we didn't really go into it. You talked about your friendships that moved away. Uh, that got sober and your friendships through Instagram. It had me thinking about, so I have friendships in Olympia. I don't have like a million friends, but I have like four ride or die, like best friends that I met actually in AA. And I've known them now for four years. And like, it's just been so beautiful to have these like long-term friendships that we're just like really committed to our friendships. We're super supportive of each other. And I think a good test of that was how supportive they've all been of my individual journey. After I got sober in through Buddhism, I was like, oh, okay, well, now I feel like I'm I'm sober. I'm comfortable being sober. I don't need AA. And it was less triggering for me to enter it in that way. I'm, I went for community. So I went to like an AA meeting where they had, they went and got pizza afterwards every week. And I went there for a year because I just really needed more community and the Buddhist recovery groups here were so small and there wasn't a large community. And so I, I did that. They witnessed me do that for a year. And eventually after a year, I was, I started getting really triggered again. And I had started having flashbacks and PTSD stuff with uh, religious stuff and God. And so they watched me need to leave. And they've just watched me blossom outside of AA. So through Tempest, I have a lot of really close friends online that live all over the world. And we get together weekly um, or we're just texting or video chats. And I didn't realize that you could have like really close friends online. I didn't, I used to, I used to tell people when they moved away, I'd be like, yeah, I don't stay connected with my friends when they move away. I would say that to people. And now it's like one of my best friends lives in New York and I hang out with them one every week. We're like reading uh, a book together right now. And I'm doing that with a couple friends during COVID is we like read a book together and get together once a week. And it's been really great. I had like a few friends here, but they're not like close, close friends, but they're like, they're good friends. They'll come over for dinner every now and then. Well, when COVID's not happening, but it is interesting because I don't have like a circle of friends, but I have a group of friends Mm -hmm. that like, I have a really close friend here, a really close friend there. They're all spread out Mm -hmm. all over the country that, it's interesting because there's like a few of them. I, they're the only people that like I say, you can call me at any point and I'll answer. And they'll just call me out of nowhere and be like my friend, Jessica, she lives in Springfield that we're not that close to me when I lived there, but now she just calls me out of nowhere. And she's like, I have to tell you about this thing that just happened. I love that. And so like 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes it's longer. And then we're like, this is really good. We'll talk again. And then that's it. And then my friend, Anthony in LA, um, he moved out to California to go like live on a farm and work at a camp. And he and him and I zoom a lot and we talk a lot. Um, It's kind of like, I view friends as like 
the medicine cabinet is like, what do I need? Like I need a little, I today I need that. And all my friends are just, I feel like they use me in the same way and not using an <laughs> When I got sober, those, my friendships got so much richer. They, because I, I got to know myself so much more that I could actually, I really defined who I was as a friend. Cause I was a really bad friend. I was out partying because I, my friendships consisted of what time are you going to the bar? See you there. Yeah. Let's get way not really talk. And that was yeah. it. And now it's, it's really with these friendships, it's there. There's so much depth and substance mm-hmm. to them. You know, my friend Anthony messaged me the other day and he said, you know, he's like, how have your friendship, to, how have your friendships with people who still drink? How is that? And I said, well, it's not awesome because they, that I changed, they did it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, now I just crave sober friendship so much because sober people, they're just so, they expose themselves so much that they mm-hmm. can just meet you where you're at. Mm-hmm. And they're so willing to have those deep conversations and you don't have to let the friend get kind of tipsy and get them relaxed. And yeah, friendships are so... That's like the magical part about sobriety. I love them. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love friendships more than ever now. The only non-sober friends I have are therapists, you know, because <laughs> they they know how to have conversation and hold space and be respectful and be supportive and empowering. And that's those are the things that I require from friends now. You know, I don't have superficial friendships. I have friendships with people that yeah are constantly working on themselves and like challenging themselves and know how to show up and be consistent and be loving and caring. And you kind of touched on this earlier when you were talking about like, do I, do I want, do I need to try to fit in with these friends anymore? And yeah. And that was something that I used when I first got sober, I thought I, I thought I needed to hurry up and get back to where I was. Like I needed to fit back into some, specific box of what life was supposed to look like and that was like my friendships were supposed to be like this I was supposed to have a lot of cool friends and go out dancing all the time and um you know I was supposed to get a job that looked like this and and it's so funny that I just had to let all of that go because in sobriety life life looks so different than I I thought I wanted it to be and it's so much better than I it, when I first got sober if like if if the life that I thought I wanted then and was created, it would not look as good as the life that I have, I have just created naturally through trial and error, you know, of what life just became by seeking out the tools and the wisdom and the people that I needed that were supportive. And I mean, and I still, and we have fun. I like, it's, it's almost like reconnecting with that natural ability to have fun that we had as children. I remember being in like youth group and just being ridiculous and having so much fun and we didn't drink and then when we I started drinking it's like I lost that ability it's like I always thought I needed to drink at a party to be comfortable and it's like no being in sobriety is like reconnecting with this these like these magical powers of just being able to have a good time and feel comfortable and connect with people without needing to like mask or change or alter you know just showing up authentically yeah, that's that's exactly it. That is when my therapist, you know, asked me, when was like your most recent happy memory? And I thought, honestly, when I was like seven or eight, 
And at that time, I was 28 years old. And I thought, mm-hmm. that's a problem. And we had to go back through. And it was, it was because we we start to we we know ourselves more at the age of like five than we ever than than people ever will because we we start to grow up we start to realize what the world expects of us and wants us to be and so our creativity goes away and not all but some and and so I kind of felt like when I got sober I was starting to kind of put those take those walls down and I was starting to completely remove all that and that's that's the most freeing experience in the world and so you know when i have like my coworker, i have coworkers, and they're great but again i'm like like you had to come to happy hour but you know but you know vince happy hour i gotta be honest with you we have some real we have we talk about a lot of deep things and i just look at them I'm like okay great yeah i don't need happy hour for that we can talk about it right now like i don't like i'm gonna sh- i'm here showing up 100 percent. like i don't you no longer have to wait for the happy hour for the wine to get to the table to like actually just start talking. And that's, that's what's already gave me. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You don't have to wait for happy hour to right. just, yeah. just show up authentically and have deep conversation. Well, and that's, that goes back to like when we talked about, you know, the, like back to the vulnerable disco was mm-hmm. when I was little, the most freeing experience a happy experience was when I was, you know, eight years old and I was putting on shows on the front porch. Mm-hmm. Like I'm looking at this picture right now on my desk and it's a picture of me with like a Christmas tree around my waist and an apron around my shoulders. And I was like a little dancer and I was so happy and free and that, that joy of dancing and performing and living was so there and it was so inherent at that age that, then when I became an adult, the only way to do that was to drink. Mm-hmm. I lost, I lost that part of me. And I was so, when I went to therapy, I realized I was so devastated that I lost that. And I tucked that, I tucked that inner child away. And, and so getting sober, I've, I found him again. I found that little boy who, who was not afraid to just be who he was. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to him a lot. And I think, that reparenting that so much of us need to do is so important to reconnect with that five-year-old in us. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit, which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash 
Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Thank you.